Well, good morning, church family. It's good to see all of you here this morning. I'm Jacob Yarbrough. I'm one of the elders that serve here. And and for our scripture reading this morning, I'll be reading from the book of Colossians. uh, Colossians chapter 1, verses 3 through 12. And I'm reading from the New American Standard Version, 1995. So... Starting in verse 3 of Colossians 1. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you just as in all the world also is constantly bearing fruit and increasing even as it has been doing in you since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf. And he also informed us of your love in the Spirit. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask you uh, that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. And may God bless the reading of his word. I'm going to read this morning from Colossians chapter 2, and then we will get started. It says, In him you have been made complete, and he is the head over all rule and authority. And in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without human hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven all of our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt, consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us and has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Father, we thank you for the message of the gospel. That is it in a nutshell. And Lord, we pray for this morning that uh, we would see the church in Colossae and want to be like them. Lord, we see in there, in the scripture, in this passage, that you have written to them and to us today just the qualities of a life of fruitfulness. And Lord, I pray that we would be so. And Lord, uh, we, we lift up the Hogan family real quick and just the, um, the grief that is upon their hearts. I pray that you would comfort them. And just thank you for Calvary Bible Church. I thank you for my church family. I thank you for all of the ages and all the ways that you brought us together here this morning. We lift this up in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning, church family. Today we'll be in Colossians chapter 1. We'll be going from verses 3 through 12. I will try to stand it that way, and so I can, you can hear me in the microphone. But I'm Byron Brashaw, the pastor here at Calvary Bible Church. If you have any questions, feel free to see me after the service today. We are in our second week of the book of Colossians. Last Sunday morning, we just simply introduced this book. We looked at the author, the date, the audience, the location of writing, the purpose for writing. And then this morning, we unpack Colossians chapter 1, verses 3 through 12. And what we see in these 
verses is Paul's prayer. His prayer comes in two different pieces or two different parts. You have the prayer of thanksgiving in verses 3 through 8 where we see the qualities of the fruitful life that the church of Colossae possesses. And then you also see Paul's prayer of petition in verses 9 through 12. And, you know, a lot of scholars really wrestle with how is the book of Colossians outlined. And there's a lot of discussion on that, but quite frankly, it's actually pretty simple. Sometimes we have the tendency to overthink things. Anybody else in the room like me on that? We simply overthink things, but really the book of Colossians breaks down into three major sections. You have chapter 1, 1 through 12, or excuse me, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 is the introduction. And then chapter 1, 3, verse 3 through 2, 5 is doctrine. And then 2, 6 to the end of the book is application. So that's kind of the orientation of the book of Colossians. And what we see in our passage today in Colossians chapter 1, verses 3 through 12, we see the qualities of a fruitful life. The qualities of a fruitful life. But we also see something else. We see the three qualities that the church of Colossae possesses, and my prayer after this morning is that we would also possess those. But you also see that one burr in the saddle. Did I say that correct? Um, You see that one thorn in the flesh, that one thing that could bring it all down. How many of you have ever had a spiritual leader in your life that you looked up to? Anybody else? Okay. I mean, it could be somebody that you knew personally or somebody in, on TV, maybe. Okay, maybe not so much. Okay, there's some interesting televangelists out there. Um, uh, so what are some of the qualities? What are some of the qualities of somebody that you admire spiritually, somebody you look up to? I'm asking in this particular regard, or I'll awkwardly stare at you. What are the qualities of a good spiritual leader? Maturity, good. Honesty, good. Yeah, knows the word, lives the word, preaches the word. What else? Faithfulness, very good. What else? Grace. I just heard something else. What else? Anything else? Yeah, I love people. You know, how many of you remember the commercial, I think it's from the 1990s, when Gatorade, I think, was in a glass bottle? Um, be like Mike. Anybody remember that commercial? Be like Mike. Am I looking at that one? Okay. The commercial sings a song. Says sometimes I dream that I am he and he is me. I don't know how they got these lyrics. Got to see that's how I dream to be. I dream I'm you to be like Mike. Oh, to be like Mike if I could be like Mike. And then at the end of the commercial it says, Be like Mike. Drink Gatorade. Only if Gatorade made me jump higher and made me $30 million a year. Okay, slight issue. Well, based on Colossians chapter 1, verses 3 through 12, I want us to be like the church of Colossae. I would like us to be like the church of Colossae. What we see in our passage is our three qualities in verses 3 through 8, but then we also see a potential problem in 9 through 12. But also what I want you to see is not only would I like us to be like the church in Colossae, but I want us as individuals, as, as, as people, to be like Epaphras. So we not only see the qualities of a great, dynamic, mature church in the middle of nowhere Turkey, But then we also see this pastor named Epaphras and the qualities that he has as an individual. And so the question we're answering today, what are the three qualities for great spiritual impact? And today 
from, we'll be unpacking verses 3 through 8 and 9 through 12. But just notice with me in your text, verse 3, I have it up here, and this is not to discourage you from looking at your text. I would encourage you to look at one. The reason I have the verses up here is so I can point to things and nerd out on all of you, okay? Chapter 1, verse 3 says this, we give thanks. No, just make some observations with me. This is really the beginning of the letter in many respects. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. I want you to notice that who does he call God? You know, if you notice in verse 1, he says, by the will of God. But here, in my opinion, he calls the Father fully divine, but also the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ himself, Jesus himself, is fully divine, which we all know to be. And one scholar said that the word Lord there equates Jesus to be with Yahweh in the Old Testament. And then notice the last phrase, praying always for you. This word always is at all times. And the word praying is a present participle showing continual action in the present. So we give thanks to God the Father. As I mentioned last week in verse 1, the Father is the Steven Spielberg of redemption. He is the... He is the director of the redemptive plan of God. And the agent of redemption is Jesus Christ. Then notice verse 4. What does he say about the church in Colossae? Notice again in verse 3. I'll just give it a little bit of context. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you since we heard. In the original language, the word since is not actually there. It's implied. The word, it literally says, hearing of your faith. In Christ Jesus, in the love which you have for all the saints. So why does he pray for them in verse 3? He prays for them because he has heard of their faith and their love for all the saints. He prays thanksgiving, number one, because be like Colossae and walk by faith. I'm going to talk about faith, what that actually is. I think we have a too small of a view on the word faith. The word faith in the original language that we see in verse 4 is the Greek word pistis, meaning to persuade or to believe something is true or to trust in it. But faith, as we see biblically speaking, is far more than just an intellectual assent. I think that's a really big problem in our modern culture. That we think that faith is just, a, is just a moment in time or that we think because we know something to be true that we actually trust it to be true. But faith, even biblical faith, is not a leap of faith, but it's based on fact and grounded in evidence. And verse 4 is the explanation of verse 3. Why does Paul pray for the church of Colossae? Since we heard of your faith and your love for all the saints. They have living faith. The, war, the Lord is working in mighty ways in the church of Colossae. But what do, we, what do we mean by faith? I mean, we see the word pistis in the original language, but, but what is it? You know, Hebrews chapter 11 gives a really good definition. What does it say? Faith is assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Anybody tracking with me on that one? But what does that even mean? <laughs> okay. So what does that verse even mean? It's kind of confusing. So I chose a translation that helps us make more sense of that verse. It says this, Faith is the confidence that what we hope for will actually happen. It gives us assurance about things we cannot see. We think of faith in two dimensions, but faith is really three dimensions. We think of faith through, as Protestants, we think of faith as through the lens of a Billy Graham crusade. Am I the only one that does that? Okay, We think of it as a Billy Graham crusade, that you 
have faith to walk down front and to receive Christ. That we think of it as the moment you become a Christian. But what, what does the scripture say? What does it say in Romans? It says what? The righteous man shall what? Live by faith. The faith is, is a moment in time that you choose to believe in Jesus Christ. But that's not all faith's role in our life. That faith also should, we should live by faith. In other words, what? We should trust the Lord. We should trust what he says. It says also in Hebrews 11, it says, And without faith it is impossible to please God. Whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. This life requires faith. We will never understand everything. That is actually difficult for many of us to accept. That we will never, on this side of heaven, ever understand everything. We will not have all of the questions that we have for the Lord answered. You will never understand why God allowed certain trials or people in your life. You will never fully comprehend the Lord's majesty and power. You will never fully comprehend the promises of God. You will never fully understand the promise of eternal life. You will never understand everything. And that's okay. Is that okay with you? Okay. Is it okay with you that we will not truly understand why God has allowed things into our life? We will never understand the totality of the promises of God. I think sometimes we just need to hear in life that it's okay to trust the Lord. Amen. It's okay to relinquish control. We trust him. Why do we trust him? It's because we know his character. That he is good. That his word endures forever. For his spirit lives inside of us. He sealed us for the day of redemption. That Jesus' return is sure and imminent. We can trust the Lord because we know He is love and that He is good. Let me ask you a question. We see this church in Colossae. Paul, he is sitting in Roman prison some 700 or 800 miles away from the city of Colossae. And he is sitting there in Roman prison in this church in Colossae, in this no-name city, in this tiny town, okay? Like the tiny towns in Alabama that you've never heard of, even though you've lived here your whole life. Colossae is one of those. Paul hears about their faith from 800 miles away. I find that to be absolutely incredible that these people trust the Lord that much, that their pastor, named Papyrus, would tell Paul about his church's faith. Let me just ask you the question. How many of you have ever met somebody of great spiritual impact? What is a quality that they all had? They all had faith to trust the Lord. So to be like Colossae, quality number one is to walk by faith. We see prayers, Paul's prayer of thanksgiving. He commends them for their faith. But then notice the second piece of verse I put it back up here again. Since we heard of your faith, this answers why they're praying for him, praying for them in verse 3. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for, notice that word, (laughs) for all the saints, 
Even the annoying ones. Okay, right. I mean, what are the all? I wonder why Paul puts that word all there. All of the people in church. We've heard that of your faith and the love which you have for all the people in the body of Christ in the city of Colossae. What did we talk about last week? That we as a church are family. To be like the church in Colossae, we must walk by faith and we also must love. Love is the word, is the message, is the tell of the Bible. What is the point of the Bible? It is God's love for me compels me to what? Then love God and love others. That their love is so legendary that their pastor Epaphras would bring a word from Turkey all the way to Rome and tell them, tell Paul about his, their love for one another. But in our culture, I'll just say it this way, we, I think we have a misgiving on what love actually is. And the misgiving of our culture in love really affects our view of it. Matter of fact, I, I do a lot of premarital counseling with couples. And um, I've been married 15 years this March. I guess I have some experience these days. Okay, that's crazy. Anyways, moving on. Um, I do a lot of premarital counseling with couples. And one of the things we always do is that we define what love actually is. Because most people in our culture, if you actually read or listen to songs in our culture, most people feel like love is a feeling. But that's not true love. What is love? Love is an act of the will. It is choosing to put somebody else before ourselves. Friends, listen. When we walk in this room, that we are to love one another, that we are to care for one another, What does that mean? It means we put ourselves aside. It means that we leave ourselves at the door and that we come here for him and we over me. That we would love one another. And the love that we see in the church of Colossae is so, for lack of a better word, intoxicating that it travels all the way to Rome. And Paul hears about this church and the love they have for all of the saints. Not just the ones that you like in the church. We all have people in this room that we like, at least hopefully you do. Um, okay, right. I'm just mad at everybody. Okay. I mean, that could be the case. But I would imagine you have people that you really love in this room, but you also have people that probably annoy you. Anyone else can relate to that one? Okay, maybe I'm the one that annoys you. I don't know. But what I love about the verse 4 is that love for all the saints. The word saints means holy ones, and we saw in verse 2, he calls them saints and faithful brother. And brother is a Greek word, adelphois, which means brothers and sisters, that we are a spiritual family. And as I said last week, I think a lot of the issues in churches today would resolve themselves if we actually viewed one another as family. That we would work out our problems. And friends, listen to me. Loving one another doesn't mean that you never make a mistake. You will make mistakes. You will hurt people in this room. It's just a fact of life. We're family. But love means forgiving. Love means forgiving that people forgive you. Love means listening to other people and realizing you're making mistakes. How many of you have ever met a Christian uh, that knew their Bible inside and out, but were a complete jerk? (laughs) Okay. Okay, do you admire those people? 
Do you look up to those people? Do you put them on a pedestal? Well, probably not. You don't want to be like those people. It's just the way, friends, listen, we can know all of the facts in life. We can know everything about the Bible. But if we do not have love, what does it say we become? Yeah, a noisy gong. 1 Corinthians 13.2 If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. Obedience without love is legalism. Faith without love is nothing. Knowledge without love becomes arrogance. Be like Colossae, walk by faith, have love. But then notice what is the foundation of their faith and love. What is the foundation of it? Verse 5, because for the reason of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel, the hope here laid up for you in heaven. The word laid up is the Greek word apokemai. It is used only four times in the New Testament and it means to be reserved or to put in storage. But what's interesting about the four uses of the New Testament, and particularly here, it's used in an eschatological meaning. That it, we have hope stored up for us in heaven for the things that are to come. That for the things that await us. Hope laid up for you in heaven of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel. Notice here, how does he define the gospel. You track it with me? Verse 5. Of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel. It is laid up for him. Love and faith are secure because of this hope stored up for you in heaven. One commentator says this, because the Colossians knew that a string of eschatological blessings are reserved for them as their destiny, they now live faithfully and lovingly with confidence of the coming kingdom of God. So the three qualities we see because of the hope reserved for you in heaven that is to come when the end times are revealed, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel. The point I'm making today is to be like Colossae, that let us walk by faith, let us love, and let us hope in the gospel. Does that look familiar? I find it fascinating that Paul mentions all three of those words because where do we find that in the scripture itself at the end of the chapter of love in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 13, but now faith, hope, and love abide these threes, but the greatest of these is love. But if you notice in verse 5, at the very end, I don't know who did the verse markers. I'll have a talking to them when I get to heaven, okay? Because at the very end of verse 5, you have those two words that probably belong to verse 6. Because it's kind of a little bit herky-jerky. The gospel which has come to you just as in all the world, also it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing even as it has been doing in you since the day you heard and understood the grace of God in truth. Notice here with me in the beginning of verse 6, you can look on in your text, which has come to you in the original language. This, this kind of sounds past tense, but it's actually not. In the original language, it's a present part. It's simple, which shows continuing action in the present, which has come and is coming to you. It's constantly working in your life, the gospel. In other words, what? You know, we never outgrow our need for the gospel. 
We never outgrow the need to be reminded of the good news of Jesus Christ. It is continually working in our life. The word come is not erikomai, it echo, but it's parantos, which means present with you. The gospel is with them and is continuing to work in their lives. Believing in the gospel is not a moment in a day, but should be a moment every day. The gospel through the blood of Christ and the redemptive plan of the Father through the prompting and seal of the Spirit, that that gospel is the foundation of our faith, our love, and our hope. But then notice again in verse 6, just as in all the world also is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you, since the day you heard and understood the grace of God in truth. Again, how does he define the gospel here? But then notice real quickly, how do you actually receive the gospel? It says, heard and understood the grace of God in truth. So it's kind of a process. I think we have a misconception in churches today that it's always just a moment in time. But I would imagine most of you here today, it was a process of coming to the Lord. That multiple people shared the gospel with you. That you had to first understand and hear it. Then you had to understand why you even need the grace of God in truth. And then what you had to do, you had to believe in it. But the question I have also is, why does he talk about in verse 6, he says, just as it's come in all the world, also it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing. What is the quandary? We see the qualities of the church in Colossae, but what's the root issue? What's the problem that could cause all of it to fall down? Pause. Then my hero, in verse 7 of Colossians chapter 1, says this, Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf, and he also informed us of your love in the Spirit. Epaphras, man, um, I was preparing this week, I think, from Honest Coffee, okay? I bounce around these days a little bit. And I was in Honest Coffee, and I just read and studied verse 7, and I literally just got teary-eyed. Because Epaphras is my guy. He's my hero. Why do I say that? What is Colossae? It's a, it's a small, <laughs> insignificant city in the Roman Empire. It's a small cow town. And it has far more important neighbors to the north, called Laodicea and Hierapolis. But Epaphras decides to follow the Lord to this tiny little town in the middle of nowhere, Turkey, and he is faithful to the call. He is faithful to teach these people in Colossae how to live by faith, how to trust the Lord, how to love people. I mean, it's so epic that Paul hears about it all the way from Rome. And then how to place their hope in the gospel and the future promises of the kingdom of God. Epaphras is the one behind all of this, besides the spirit of the Lord, obviously. But Epaphras is their pastor. And he's so proud of them. He's so proud of the progress that they have that he tells Paul. And Epaphras is my hero because he doesn't do it for glory. Why do I say that he pastors a tiny town in lower Mississippi? That a a, a church that no one, he expects no one to ever hear of. Friends, listen to me. Can I, can I speak a little bit? Um, we get, 
Um, two wrapped up in nickels, noses, and nails. We get too wrapped up in how big our ministries are, or how fruitful they are, and sometimes we just need to say, God, I will be faithful to your call. I'm going to be like Epaphras. I'm going to serve wherever you have for me and trust you to produce the fruit that you want. But then notice how it describes Epaphras in verse 7. Just as you learn it from Epaphras, again, Paul probably has never visited this church in Colossae. Epaphras decided to go to this no-name cow town in the mountains of Turkey. And he says of Epaphras, our beloved, our loved, literally loved one. Our beloved fellow bondservant. The word bondservant is the word doulos, but here it says fellow bondservant. So it's not the word doulos specifically, but it's soon doulos, which means a bondservant with. So Epaphras is equally yoked to Christ as his master. Our beloved fellow bondservant who is a faithful servant. The word servant is where we get the word deacon, servant of Christ on our behalf. And he also informed us of your love in the Spirit. What does he call Epaphras? A bondservant. He is loved. He is a faithful servant of Christ. And Epaphras teaches the people to love one another in the Spirit. Being wrapped up in the measures and standards of the world and what they call successful is one of the greatest hurdles of the Christian life. You know, we don't really see that in the New Testament, that people are glorified by the size of the church or, or their speaking ability or by the charisma. We don't see that. We see men like Epaphras. But I want you to notice, not only is Epaphras faithful to the call, not only does he go to, um, about pick the city that some of you might believe in or live in, so I'm not going to say that city, but he goes to this tiny little town Okay, and he, and he serves, he's faithful, but what else is Epaphras? He also is humble. Why do I say that? Where is Epaphras? Epaphras goes from the modern Turkey, travels around the Aegean Sea, goes all the way to Rome. Why? To ask Paul a question about the church in Colossae. What does that show about him? It shows that he has humility, that he's willing to listen and look for advice. Can I just, what does it say in Proverbs eleven fourteen that there's safety in a multitude of advisors? I've seen, I don't know if you guys have ever seen this before, but I've seen a lot of ministry leaders that can't ask for advice. Amen? Am I attracted with me? I, I, had, I served with a, ministry, a, a fellow pastor in another church, and it was like all of a sudden one day I was serving with him, and he just did this. Stuck his fingers in his ears, wouldn't listen to the elders, wouldn't listen to his people, wouldn't listen to his staff, wouldn't listen to his wife. That's a big boo-boo on that one. Okay, man, his home must have been tough. Okay, he wouldn't listen to anybody. And what was inevitable? What drove right, that car right towards the cliff and flew off. Okay, three years later. Humility, a sign of humility is do we even receive the instruction and thoughts of other people. Listen, we may not agree with people, but we should listen to them. We see Epaphras here. Not only is he faithful, not only is he leading by example, not only is he told his church how to love and how to have hope in the gospel and how to have faith, but he's also humble enough to go all the way to Dallas, Texas and ask for help. 
So we see prayer, Paul's prayer of thanksgiving in verses 3 through 8. We see the three qualities, but then we see Paul's prayer of petition in verse 9 through 12. Notice the text with me. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, heard of your faith and love, that's what I take it to mean. We have not ceased to pray for you. What I think this is referring to is verses 3 through 8. But then notice what he says, and to ask. This is the petition of Paul for the church in Colossae. And to ask that you may be what? Filled. It's a passive verb. It is Passive verb means the action of the verb is being done to the subject. I was hit by the ball. That you may be filled by God with the knowledge of his will. The word knowledge there is epigenosis, which means real knowledge or discernment or clarity, or rationality, filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. What do you guys see up here? I see three words that are cousins to one another. I see knowledge, wisdom, and understanding. But he must be filled by God. So he's asking the Lord on behalf of the church of Colossae to be filled by God with discernment. With the ability to clearly understand the knowledge of God and the knowledge of His will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. The question I have is why? You know, what's going on in the church of Colossae that he would pray for this? As I mentioned very briefly last week, there is this church heresy that is bubbling up in the church of Colossae called what? Gnosticism. Gnosticism had a lot of problems. That's why it's called a church heresy. Um... But it had two major issues. That Number one is saw that all things in flesh, all flesh is naturally inherently evil. Problem number one is why he says in the end of chapter one that he took you on in his fleshly body. That if all flesh is evil, then Jesus' sacrifice was insufficient. But then also number two, the, the Gnosticism believed that you came to salvation by some hidden knowledge of some hidden deity. That's why I believe in verse 6, he says, which has come to you as in all the world, that the gospel is not some secret knowledge that you have. It's not for the elite or the exclusive, but the gospel is, in a sense, inclusive, that all people can believe. And that's why he's saying that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will, not the knowledge of secrets, of that Gnosticism garbage that you're believing that you're struggling with, but then the real knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. The quandary in the church in Colossae, they have great qualities of faith, hope, and love, but they have this bubbling problem of false beliefs. Um, can I just share something real quick? All of us in this room, whether you have a PhD in theology or not, we all have lies that we believe. That deep down, you know, I don't think I'm good enough. I don't think I've really earned my way to heaven. I don't, how could a good, loving God love somebody as terrible as me? Do I really believe that God exists? Do I really believe that God loves me? Do I really... And the list goes on and on and on. But if we don't address those seeds of doubt, those seeds of questions, those seeds will blossom and can cause us to crumble. How many, how many of you, 
You don't have to raise your hands to this. But how many of you have ever looked up to a Christian? Somebody, man, that you put on a pedestal and you thought the world of, okay? How many of you ever looked and then all of a sudden they just... It's usually because of a lie that's in their mind and in their heart that they haven't dealt with. It's a false belief. We see in the church of Colossae that there is this sense of Gnosticism, of a false gospel bubbling up, and Paul is just addressing it head on. So to be like Colossae by avoiding false beliefs. We've all seen Christians who struggle, who are derailed in their Christian faith by a sin issue or by a faith or by a false belief. We all know them. And none of us are above falling. Notice in your text, verse 10, why is it important to address the false beliefs in their life? Verse verse 10, so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. In other words, what? If you believe the wrong thing, it is impossible to truly walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. What does it mean to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord? It means this, to please Him in all respects. I mean that emotions, heart. Bearing fruit in every good work, the will, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Notice that. Again, he is talking about the knowledge, spiritual wisdom, and understanding, the knowledge of his will. Again, he is addressing the issue in the church, the quandary that is bubbling up in the church of Colossae that can bring it all down. That you have this wonderful church, this great spiritual mature church that could all be brought down because of a false belief that is bubbling in the saints and faithful brother in Christ who are there. Increasing in the knowledge of God. There are people that um, pick one of these. That, you know, they, they want to please God with their emotions, they want to please God with their actions, and they want to please God with their mind. But it takes all three. What does it say in Matthew 22? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. But I'll just say it this way. There are some people in Christian circles that think the knowledge of God is overrated. That... Um, that being a Christian is about what I do or about what I feel. But other people think that too much of the knowledge of God, and they become J-E-R-Ks, okay? They become arrogant, and... But what we see in verse 10 is Paul's addressing the issue in the church. But I'm just going to say it this way. In the same way that there was a form of Gnosticism bubbling up in the church of Colossae, I believe that there is a form of Gnosticism in churches today. There are false gospels everywhere in church cultures. The false gospel of prosperity, false gospel of emotional, spiritual entertainment, the false gospel of all truth is relative. But I go on my Facebook, um, and I know a lot of pastors in town, not in town, but anyways, I graduated with a bunch of seminary. And I just watch some of these guys and their journeys with the Lord. And some of them, as soon as they graduate from seminary, steered left and just are driving right off a cliff. There's a new form of Gnosticism in churches today. It's called Bible selectivity. That some pastors want to believe certain sections of the Bible and ignore other sections of the Bible. You tracking with me? Now, some pastors, that's a form of Gnosticism. It is what I want to know. It's secret knowledge that I 
force and I create. I go on my Facebook all the time. And there's one guy in particular, I won't say your name. Maybe I should say your name and call you a heretic. Anyways, moving on. But there's one guy on Facebook, and every, I just watch him. And, and it's like every day, he takes a step to the left, and a step further, and a step further, and a step further. And I'm, and I literally look at his posts on Facebook, and I just, I mean, does he, does he read the same Bible I do? I mean, that's what I say to myself. But it's all of us. We like certain parts of the Bible and not some other ones. We don't like the stuff that convicts us of sin and talks about repentance and talks about all the flesh, but we love the promises of God in Romans 8. Okay? And that's the form of Gnosticism in our churches today. But then notice how, how can we walk in a manner? What, what gives us the ability? So we see how to in a sense. But what gives us the ability to walk in a manner worthy of God? Strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience. Again, verse division here. Killing me, Smalls. Joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. What gives us the ability to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord? In verse 10, it is strengthened with all power. God's power. The Holy Spirit working inside of us gives us the ability to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. But then notice the question I have with specifically verse 12 is what's the relationship? You know, what's the relationship between verse 12 and virtually the rest of verses 11, 1 through 11? What gives us the ability to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord? Well, number one, we must recognize the power of God to do so. That the Spirit of God is inside of us, that we should depend on and walk according to the Spirit, right? And track it. But then number two, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints of light. What's the command he gives us? Joyously giving thanks. Walking in a manner worthy of the Lord, number one, is by the power of the Lord, but also, number two, is our attitude of thankfulness for what the Father has done for us. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Verse 12 doesn't seem to fit, but a bitter heart is susceptible to believe the lies of the enemy far more than a thankful heart. A heart that appreciates the Father's provision is more receptive to the power and the voice of the Spirit than an embittered heart. So be like the church in Colossae. Walk by faith, love, hope, avoid the quandary of false beliefs. But really, so what? You know, how can we apply this passage to our lives? You know, the question I have for all of us is this. What am I leaving behind? What do the people in my life say about me? And it's not meant to shame, it's just meant to be a reality check. Do people around me say that I am a person of faith? That I, you know, I trust God even when I don't fully understand. That I walk by faith and not by sight. Do I really trust the character and the goodness of the Lord. I imagine every single one of you in this room, if you have somebody that you looked up to spiritually, they all had faith. They trust the Lord in the midst of difficult circumstances. 
The question is, what is something that you struggle to trust the Lord with? Money, kiddos, job, future, we all have our issues. If you want to know what you struggle to trust the Lord in, then answer the question, what causes you anxiety? Okay, all right? That's, just, that's a good telltale sign of the struggles that you have of faith. But then number, number one, do we have faith? Do people know us as people of faith? Number two, do people know us as people of love? Do we see brothers and sisters in Christ as our family? Do we set ourselves aside? Do we choose to love the people in our lives? Do we choose to love our spouse? Do we choose to love our children? Do we choose to love? It's easy to love people who love you, but we're supposed to love all the saints. (laughs) Also the annoying ones. Okay, all right. All of the saints, not just the ones that we get along with. Do we love? But then also, number three, I hope that people would think of us as people that hope in the gospel, that look to the eschatological promises of the future that are placed upon us through the cross of Jesus Christ, that are stored up for us, that the gospel gives us hope for the future, that he will reconcile all things, that he will establish a new heaven and new earth, that there will be paradise on the other side of eternity, that there he is preparing us a place... I mean, if you look to this world for hope, uh, ouch, I, uh, I've shared this story before, but I was talking to one of my brother, one of my brother-in-laws, I've got four, I actually got more than four of them, i got a lot of them, um, and, you know, I've seen his faith, I've seen him walk with the Lord, and he's one of the few that started out with me in high school walking with the Lord, and that he's one of the few that have actually maintained that walk. And I just asked him one day, I said, Justin, I said, why are you still a Christian? Why do you still walk the walk? And he said, Byron, the gospel is the only hope in this world. That's right, man. It is truly the only hope that we have in the midst of this dark, decaying world. That one day our Lord will return. And what does it say in 1 Thessalonians 4.18? It says, encourage one another with these words. That the hope and return of Christ gives us encouragement today that we can endure whatever pain we face. But then the last thing I'm going to leave you with is this. What lies do you struggle with in your life? What are things in your life that are causing, that are rooting in your mind and your heart that are causing fruits of unrighteousness and doubt? We all have things. We all have false beliefs. We all have temptations. We all have our parents in the way they, you know, formed us. We all have baggage and trials. Let's just recognize and be aware and let us replace the lies that we believe with the truth of God's word and change it. Let us be like Colossae. Let us be people that love, have faith, and have hope, and who correct the false beliefs in our life. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for this morning and just the word of God and just how you use this seemingly insignificant church in a small town in modern-day Turkey, and it echoes through the pages of your word, what we should be like in our lives. And Lord, may we heed 
the example that they give to us. May we not be in this life for what we can get out of it or what we want, but Lord, that we would serve you and be faithful to your call, no matter where you would take us, and that we would trust you for the difference, for the fruit that is produced. And Lord, pray for those that do not know you as Savior, Lord, those that have never trusted you as the Lord of their life, Lord, I pray for those, that you would come to them, that you would help them understand they have heard, understand, and believe the grace of God in truth, that you have come and you have died for their sins, and to restore us in a relationship with you, to reconcile you to ourselves, and that we believe in your Son, that we would be saved. And I pray for those that do not know you, that you would convict their heart to believe. And thank you for this morning, and thank you for this church. I thank you for the legacy that they have over the last 60 years, the people that love you and people that love your word. Be with the rest of our time today. In Jesus' name, amen.